As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 136, and it's the third in a little mini-series I'm doing on Tudor London. This one focuses on the gates of the city and the road to Westminster. But first, a reminder about TudorCon. Of course, you can still get the early bird tickets until the end of the year, actually until the 7th of January, because we keep the 12 days of Christmas here. You can save $50 off the regular price with the early bird ticket. So if you're interested in coming and spending three days learning from authors and historians, including Nathan Amin and more, and you also want to hang out with fellow Tudor enthusiasts and party, form new friendships and learn together, Go to englandcast.com slash TudorCon2020 to learn more and reserve your tickets. So this episode is about Tudor London, specifically what 16th century London was like for our Tudor friends. This is the third episode in this little mini series, this feature on life in 16th century cities. And I'm doing several episodes just on Tudor London, and then we're going to move on to other cities. So last week, we talked about the bridge and the rivers and how London actually has 21 rivers running underneath her and all the different ways that people navigated them, including the impressive London Bridge. Today, we're going to talk about the city gates and the walk down to Westminster. Because, of course, nowadays, Westminster and the city are linked together, this one big hodgepodge of a metropolis. But during the Tudor period, these were two distinct cities. One was the head of commerce and trade, and the other was the seat of government. You can get full show notes for this episode at englandcast.com slash Westminster. Again, englandcast.com slash Westminster. Let's start by talking about the gates. The old medieval gates stood until the 18th century, by which time they had been destroyed. 
But during the Tudor and Elizabethan period, they were these enormous buildings that extended over the roadway with rooms inside that could be used for a lot of different purposes, including two of which that were jails. Gross alert, this is also where parts of the bodies of criminals, the ones convicted of treason that were hung, drawn, and quartered, this is where the quarters were hung. Remember their heads would go on London Bridge? Well, the other parts of their bodies would be hung on city gates as a deterrent. So, you know, yuck. Three of the gates our Tudor friends knew actually were parts of the original Roman plan, and those were Aldgate, Aldersgate, and Ludgate. John Stowe, in his survey of London, walked through each gate, walked us through giving what he knew of the history. He started at the Tower of London, where there was a narrow gate by the moat. Aldgate had a portcullis that still worked, and that opened up onto the main road to the east. The old Roman wall at this point was pretty much straight north and south. And then after Aldgate, the wall changed direction to the northwest towards Bishopsgate, overseeing the route to Cambridge, Norfolk, and Suffolk. Stowe himself did not know who this bishop was for whom the gate was named, but he did say that in 1479, the Hanseatic merchants were responsible for the upkeep and they rebuilt it. Stowe said it was done beautifully. The next one over was Cripplegate, and that was rebuilt in 1491. According to the old stories, there used to be many quote-unquote cripples begging at that gate. And that's where the gate Cripplegate, where the name Cripplegate came from. And apparently in 978, the body of Edmund the Martyr came through that gate and everyone was cured. So they kept the name. So those were the gates on the north side of the city. Then the wall went south for a little bit and straightened out heading west. And that's where Alder's Gate was. Following that was Newgate, the newest of the gates but that was still built during the reign of Henry I or King Stephen sometime during that period in the earliest part of the 12th century. Both Newgate and the next one over Ludgate were used to house prisoners in the multi-story buildings on either sides of the gates. Since 1218, Newgate had been used as a prison. Then there was Ludgate, which, according to Stowe, was built by King Lud, an ancient Briton, right around AD 66. It had been one of the old Roman gates, and by 1378, it was used as a prison for the freemen of the city who had committed minor offenses. In 1586, the city spent 1,500 pounds rebuilding it. Originally, the wall went down to the river from here, but the Dominicans had a large area there for their friary, the Black Friars, and they asked Edward I to reconstruct the wall to bend it a a bit so that their land, their territory, was inside the wall. And so that was done. And then the wall wound up meeting the Thames right around at Fleet Street. The one gate I haven't said anything about yet was Moorgate, which was more of a postern. The earliest descriptions date from the early 15th century, and it led to a moor known as Moor Fields. It was not one of the larger or more important of the city gates. The gate itself had been enlarged in 1472 and then again in 1511, and then it was damaged in the Great Fire of London. So those are the gates in the wall that protect the city of London. So you've got the river on one side and then the the wall going up in a sort of U that's kind of uneven in certain places that protects the city from the non-water sides. And in that are about seven different gates where you can enter and exit. And of course, those would have been closed up and locked at night and then opened back up again in the morning. So let's walk now from the city down to Westminster along the Strand. 
The street is the main link between the two cities of Westminster and London. It runs west, starts at Fleet Street from Temple Bar, and then turns into the Strand and runs to Trafalgar, what is now Trafalgar Square, parallel to the River Thames. The name was first recorded in 1002 as Strandway, and then in 1185 as Strand, and in 1220 as La Stranda. It's formed from the old English word strand, meaning the edge of a river. Initially, it referred to the shallow bank of the once much wider Thames before the construction of Victoria Embankment. The name was later applied to the road itself. In the 13th century, it was known as Danesmanstrat, or Street of the Danes, referring, of course, to the community of Danes that were living in the area. During the period of Roman Britain, what's now the Strand was actually part of the route to Silchester. And then it was briefly part of the trading town Lindenwick that developed around 600. And then Alfred the Great generally moved the whole settlement back into the Roman walls of Londinium after 886. And the whole area returned back to fields and then it was redeveloped. So in the Middle Ages, the Strand became the principal route, like I said, between the separate settlements, which were the City of London and the Palace of Westminster. The Strand was known for its large mansions that were owned by bishops and nobles. From the 12th century onwards, these large mansions lined the Strand, including several palaces and townhouses that were inhabited by bishops and royal courtiers, mainly on the south side, like I said, with their own river gates and landings directly onto the Thames. So they never had to see the rabble on the road. The road itself was very poorly maintained. There were a lot of pits and potholes, everything like that, and a paving order was issued in 1532 to improve traffic. Don't send me an email saying there weren't potholes. Like, I know there weren't potholes. It's just to say. So don't send me that email. You're thinking about it. Stop. So, yes, a paving order was issued in 1532 to help improve the traffic. What later became Essex House on the Strand was originally an outer temple of the Knights Templar in the 11th century. In 1313, the ownership passed to the Knights of St. John, and then Henry VIII gave the house to William Baron Pageant in the early 16th century. Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, rebuilt the house in 1563. He originally called it Leicester House, and then it was renamed Essex House after being inherited by Robert Devereux, the second Earl of Essex, in 1588. Then it was destroyed, demolished around 1674, And Essex Street, which leads up to the Strand, was built in the same spot. Another one of these famous palaces was Arundel House, originally the townhouse of the Bishops of Bath and Well. It was owned by William Fitzwilliam, the first Earl of Southampton, between 1539 and 1542 when he died. And then the ownership passed to Thomas Seymour in 1545. When Seymour was executed in 1549, the property was sold to Henry Fitzalan, Earl of Arundel, and was owned by that earldom for the 16th and 17th centuries. In 1666, it became the meeting place of the very famous Scientific Royal Society after the Great Fire of London destroyed their previous meeting place. And then the house was demolished in 1678, and another street, Arundel Street, adjoining the Strand, was built on the same site. Somerset House was built by Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset, regent during the reign of Edward VI. And in the process, he demolished three inns and the Church of the Nativity of Our Lady and the Innocents. 
After Somerset was executed in 1552, it became an occasional residence for Princess Elizabeth. And then when she became queen in 1558, she returned part of the house to Seymour's family, and then ownership passed to his son. When Elizabeth died, it was owned by Anne of Denmark, the wife of James VI and the I, and it was renamed Denmark House in commemoration of Anne's brother, Christian IV of Denmark. And of course, at this time of year, you can go to Somerset House for the ice skating rink, which I highly recommend if you're anywhere nearby. And as you're skating around, you can think about all of the history in that grand area. The Savoy Palace was the London residence of John of Gaunt. And in the 14th century, it was the most magnificent mansion in England. During the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, the rebels were so inflamed by opposition to the poll tax promoted by John of Gaunt that they destroyed the Savoy and anything in it. The last time I mentioned that Edward Rutherford novel about London called London, a biography, I think it's called. I'll link to it in the show notes. Anyway, there's a really vivid scene in that book of the Peasants' Revolt and destroying the Savoy Palace. You should check that out if you want to learn more. In 1512, it was rebuilt as the Savoy Hospital for the Poor. Then it gradually kind of fell apart and fell into disrepair, and it was divided into multiple tenancies. Finally, it was completely completely demolished in the early 19th century to build the approach to Waterloo Bridge. And then it was demolished even more and is now the spot of the Savoy Hotel. And a fun fact about the Savoy Hotel, if you don't already know this, is Savoy Street is the only road in Britain where drivers go down the right-hand side instead of the left-hand side. Apparently, a special act of parliament gave traffic the privilege of driving on the right side when entering Savoy Court from the Strand because the Savoy Theatre is on the right-hand side. So taxis can deposit people right outside the theater without having to turn around in front of the hotel, and then they can pick up a new person as they turn around. So the only street in England where you drive on the right side of the road rather than the left. Fun fact about Savoy. Durham House is the historic London residence of the Bishop of Durham, and it was built right around 1345, and it was demolished in 1660. For a while, it was actually the home of Anne Boleyn, but then it fell into disrepair, and eventually Durham Street and the Adelphi buildings were built on the same site. So here's another fun fact. In 2000, I worked at the Adelphi building on the seventh floor, looking out over the Thames, where I was a researcher for a headhunting firm. There's a fun fact about the Adelphi building. York House was built as the London residence for the Bishop of Norwich before 1237. At the time of the Reformation, it was acquired by Henry and came to be known as York House when he granted it to the Archbishop of York in 1556. In the 1620s, it was bought by the royal favorite George Villiers, the first Duke of Buckingham, And then after the Civil War, it was returned to George Villiers, the second Duke of Buckingham, who sold it to developers in 1672. It was then demolished. You're sensing a pattern here, aren't you? Everything seems to have been demolished right in the mid-17th century. And new streets and buildings were built there, including George Street and Villiers Street, Duke Street, and Buckingham Street. Other really large, famous palaces along the Strand were Worcester House, formerly the inn or residence of the Bishop of Carlisle, Salisbury House, used for royal lodgings in the 15th and 16th century, Hungerford House, which was demolished and replaced in turn by Hungerford Market and then Charing Cross Station. 
The official residence of the Secretary of State is at number one, the Strand, and that, again another fun fact, became the first numbered address in London. The north side of the Strand, like I said, didn't have a whole lot of development. It led into fields and farmland, but at the bend in the river where the Strand met Whitehall, there was the village of Charing. In 1290, Edward I erected crosses to commemorate his wife, Eleanor, where her coffin rested on the way to Westminster Abbey from Nottinghamshire. The present Charing Cross by the station is actually Victorian. The original cross that was in that place was torn down during the English Civil War. And actually, the original space where the cross was is now a statue of Charles I leading down Whitehall. So if you're ever going on that walk and you see the statue of Charles I, that is where the original Eleanor's Cross is. Now, of course, there's this Victorian cross right outside Charing Cross Station. That's not where it would have been. But the village of Charing did have this very famous Eleanor's Cross in that people would have seen as they were coming and going. On the other side of that junction, over towards Trafalgar Square, what's Trafalgar Square now, was the Royal Mews. Then the public road itself turned south and went through Whitehall Palace to Westminster Abbey, Westminster Hall, and the old Palace of Westminster, which is now where Whitehall is. By the 13th century, the Palace of Westminster had become the center of government in England and had been the main London residence of the king since 1049. And of course, the surrounding area became a very popular, expensive location. In 1240, the Archbishop of York, Walter de Grey, bought a nearby property as his London residence, and he called it York Place. Edward I stayed at York Place several times while work was carried out at Westminster, and it was enlarged to accommodate the court, his large entourage. Then it was rebuilt again during the 15th century and expanded so much by Cardinal Wolsey when he owned it that the only palace that came close to rivaling it was Lambeth Palace. Then, when Henry VIII removed the cardinal from power, he graciously allowed Wolsey to give him York Place and used that as his main London residence. The name Whitehall was first recorded in 1532 and apparently had its origins in the white stone that was used for the buildings. Henry spent a lot of money and time on building and construction in Whitehall. He was inspired by Richmond Palace, so he included sporting facilities, a bowling green, an indoor real tennis court, a pit for cockfighting, and a tilt yard for jousting. That's now the site of the Horse Guards Parade. And of course, Whitehall is where Henry VIII married two of his wives, Anne Boleyn and then Jane Seymour. Then we head down into Westminster, which was still an island of sorts during the Tudor period, surrounded by some of these rivers. If you look at the show notes at englandcast.com slash Westminster, I actually have a picture of a reconstruction of what it would have looked like at that period. The main attraction at Westminster was, of course, the Abbey, which even now rivals Big Ben for attention. The best description I've ever seen of Tudor Westminster comes from C.J. Sampson, the author of the acclaimed and famous Matthew Shardlake series. And I'm going to read to you an excerpt now from his book, Revelation, which is part of that series. So starting on page 82, we have Matthew pulling up to Whitehall Stairs on the river. And he says, the boat pulled up at Whitehall Stairs. We walked under the Holbein Gate and down into King Street. I kept a hand on my purse for Westminster was as disorderly a place as could be found in England. Ahead of us loomed the vast bulk of Westminster Abbey, 
dwarfing even its neighbor, Westminster Hall, where most of the court sat. Behind Westminster Hall lay a warren of buildings, those which had survived a fire a generation ago that destroyed much of the old Westminster Palace. The House of Commons met in the painted chamber there, and the Court of Requests was nearby. Around Westminster Hall and the Abbey was a chaos of buildings, shops, inns, and taverns, serving the lawyers and churchmen and MPs who came to Westminster. Peddlers, hucksters, and prostitutes always thronged the streets, and the presence of the sanctuary at Westminster had drawn rogues to the area. Westminster's government was chaotic, for the requests of rich citizens to have it incorporated as a city had always been rejected, and now that the abbey had been dissolved, the old secular powers of the abbot had gone. So whereas now, when you visit Westminster and you visit Westminster Abbey, it's still a bit chaotic there in Parliament Square, but you get a sense of order and of structure, which would not have been there during our Tudor period. It would have been chaos with peddlers and, like, like they said, thieves and cut purses and prostitutes all hanging around, having stalls and stands and everything like that. A real kind of menagerie of all sorts of people, all sorts of types of people, plus the government, plus the bishops, just pretty much insanity in Westminster at that time period. So that's it for this week. Next time, we're going to head out into the greater metro area what is now the greater metro area. We're going to talk about these country towns and suburbs around the city, including the marshland of Lambeth, places that today are part of London, but then were distant villages like Highgate, Finsbury Field, and more. Again, remember that show notes are at englandcast.com slash Westminster. Remember, you can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 8016-TESCO or through Twitter at Tesco or facebook.com slash englandcast. Get your TudorCon tickets before January the 7th at englandcast.com slash TudorCon 2020. And hopefully we will see you next October. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Blow northern wind, ascend for maybe sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoto burd in bauderbrieg, at solisemlies on sea. Some places take you away, some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key, with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon.